The Women's March brought out between three to five million people in January 2017. It was one of the largest single-day demonstrations in U.S. history. To put those numbers in perspective, the combined armed forces of the entire U.S. military comprised just over two million people. In the fall of 2016, Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, knelt during the national anthem of the NFL games to protest police brutality and other social injustices against African Americans. Although not a single NFL team hired him for the following season, he was a source of inspiration and activism for millions of Americans. The Women's March was organized through social media. Kaepernick made his efforts on a football field. The Women's March included up to 1.6% of the entire U.S. population. The quarterback's efforts included a party of one. The basic concept of protest has certainly endured the test of time, but evolutions in media, technology, and social attitudes have inevitably altered the way we approach, think about, and participate in protests. How many people are required to effectively make a stand against injustice? Should we take these efforts to the streets or to our Twitter feeds? How does the media play a role in the success of social movements? I'm Sushma Raman, and this is Justice Matters. Here today to discuss the evolution and impact of modern-day protests and social movements is Erica Chenoweth, professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Her research focuses on political violence and its alternatives. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, talk a little bit about your research in the U.S. in the past couple of years yeah. and what you found about progressive social movements. Yeah, so my colleague Jeremy Pressman and I started accidentally counting crowds on the, the Women's March on January 21st of 2017. And what happened there is that we'd gone to the Women's Marches in our hometowns and were both totally stunned at how much bigger they were than we expected. It was easily the largest crowd that's ever gathered in Denver. And I think it was the same for Hartford. So we both got home and got on Facebook and started talking to one another about the fact that they were huge and they seemed to be huge everywhere. But there were also lots of little towns and little protests that weren't getting as much coverage. And he said, has somebody started a Google sheet? Uh, and I said, I don't think so. And, and then he said, I just did. And he shared the link. So we started just inputting data into the, the link from stories we were finding on Twitter and things. And it was just a viewable spreadsheet. And what happened is I think Jamie Lee Curtis or George Takai or somebody tweeted about it, that there was a spreadsheet. And then I got like 6,000 emails overnight <laughs> of people that trying to get us to record their march or revise the numbers that we'd put in there. And so Jeremy and I spent the next week basically collating the data that we were getting. And there were incredible stories like octogenarians and a a nursing home in Encinitas, California, who had organized an indoor march in their lobby <laughs> with their granddaughters, and they sent us a, a video recording of this and wanted to make sure they were counted. And there was something so remarkable about this need for people to be seen and be counted at this moment. Ultimately, Jeremy and I decided that we would just keep doing it. And so basically, uh, us and a few of our volunteer colleagues and a couple of hired research assistants go through um, records of protests and crowds every single day and live update them in these uh, spreadsheets that we allow people to view. 
and we get tips or records from people, but we also work with a, a pair of computer engineers who developed a web crawler called Count Love. <laughs> and uh, we write a column every month for the Washington Post about trends. And basically, the thing that's really striking is that we have had more mobilization in this country in the past two years um, than in any other time, including during the height of the civil rights movement or anti-Vietnam war protests. Well over 80% of the political crowds are protesting directly against Trump's policies or agenda, but also well over 99% of the actions are nonviolent in the sense that the sort of iconic punch a Nazi videos and things that, that are floating around out there are not at all characteristic of this movement. And the other thing that's really notable is that there's an increase in the number of people being arrested in acts of civil disobedience, meaning they're being arrested on purpose for breaking the law on purpose as a way to um, register their dissent or disrupt the system. So we actually are seeing the most contentious period in U.S. history as nonviolent action goes, and that follows global trends that say the same thing worldwide. So we do live in a tumultuous time, but the thing that's really unique about our time is that people are using nonviolent resistance to a much wider degree and with a much greater proportion than we've ever seen. So you talk about groups and individuals participating in these protests as a resistance, because in part that's how they see themselves. And I'm wondering if this framing is effective or if it's something that's really focused on an opposition to a current set of policies and perspectives as opposed to a framing that's focused on what people's values and vision really is. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of variation about whether these protests are against or for something. And it's much harder to be for something than against something, <laughs> particularly when uh, the opposition can be personified. So for example, it's much easier for movements to articulate their goal as getting a leader out of office uh, or getting a particular policy overturned or a person fired from their position than it is for them to articulate an alternative vision or kind of go on the offensive with policy plans or new interventions. And that's true for any kind of social movement. Uh, so the ones in this country that tend to be in opposition rather than in promotion, so to speak, follow just really typical trends. I think that ultimately, as with many different cases, movements that can actually articulate at least a vision, if not a really specific set of plans, but a vision, that appeals to a broader community can um, be quite effective. And usually that's coming down to really simple values and, and symbols. For example, there's a really important article that came out in the Washington Post today under the Monkey Cage blog, which is kind of a political science blog. And there was a study among independent voters about what would motivate them more to vote in 2020. And um, they gave them basically two different interventions. One was an economic message, and the other was a save democracy message. And it turned out that among independents, they were much more likely to respond to the save democracy message because that was sort of a grand vision as opposed to the sort of individualistic money in your pocket vision. So, you know, the, the vision that has to be articulated has to be kind of resonant with whatever people's chief concerns are in our current time. 
And sometimes if the message isn't right, people don't respond the way we'd expect. So you talk about research that's shown that the number of participants in Tea Party events significantly impacted the voting behavior of Republican representatives in their districts to reflect Tea Party goals. And with the more participants, there's a greater effect. So I'm wondering if you see the same phenomenon in social movements across the political spectrum or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, there's, there's a question about whether large numbers of participants affect voting behavior, regardless of whether they're on the right or on the left. And the answer is yes, and that this trend of large-scale participation in protest affecting partisan political behavior and uh, vote shares at the local level is consistent, whether you're talking about Republicans or Democrats in this country. To some extent, it depends on whether the protests remain nonviolent. So for example, in Omar Wassow's article, which evaluates the effects of black protests on civil rights versus law and order votes, he found that there was a really high correlation between um, the number of nonviolent protests and support for civil rights versus the number of violent protests or riots, which caused property damage and injury, and support for law and order candidates. So in other words, the manner in which the, the protest takes place is important in determining how people will respond to it at the polls. But among nonviolent protests alone, um, we do see a high correlation between people, say, protesting on the left and a greater share of, of left party support and vice versa. Your research on mass movements shows that they coalesce around shared claims, expand numbers and leverage, and build political power. And I'm wondering whether you see such uh, movements as monolithic and unified, or are they fractured with respect to goals and strategies, or even internal hierarchies that reflect broader societal imbalances? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of variation among movements around the degree to which they're fragmented or kind of contesting actively what claims they ought to be putting forth and um, which types of methods they ought to be using to pursue those claims and the structure of the movement itself. That is to say, are they sort of embodying the values and goals of equality and emancipation internally that they're asking for externally? And this is a spectrum question because there's no such thing as a movement in history that's been 100% unified on all of those questions. Um, it's often an active conversation. It often evolves and adapts given the circumstances and how long the movement's been going and who's showing up and things along those lines. But I think that a sort of core principle for effective movements is that they can sort of have these types of discussions and compromising and negotiations going on internally, but when they um, present externally, they have to present unified. And it's sort of the same thing as what happens on the regime side, which is, you know, they're trying to divide and rule the movement. Like, that's the way they're going to win, is by dividing the movement. And of course, what they're going to do is look at the cleavages that exist in the movement and then try to deepen them. Movements are trying to do the same thing to the regimes, <laughs> right? They're trying to basically figure out who's supporting the regime, what are the fault lines in that coalition, and how can we deepen the divide. Regimes that win, win because they don't divide from themselves. Movements that win, win because they don't succumb to the regime's attempts to divide them. 
Now, there's a rise in digital social movements around the world, which are complementing protests on the streets. But we've seen efforts underway to spread fake news about these movements and uh, to even foment violence sometimes against particular ethnic groups. And I'm wondering how traditional and digital social movements can work together effectively. I'm not super familiar with digital advocacy or activism myself. Um, but I think the, the biggest benefit that social media in particular has for movements is that especially the, the rise of Facebook and Twitter provide opportunities for people to mobilize a huge number of people on fairly short notice. And I think research has shown that that's the case. I think the biggest danger around that is assuming that that's enough um, and that people hitting the streets in large numbers is going to bring about the changes that are desired by the larger movement. In many different movements in the past, activists have said things like they spent 95% of their time planning and preparing and only 5% of their time mobilizing. What makes um, our time a little different is that people can mobilize without doing any planning, <laughs> without figuring out at all what it is that they're gonna want to do when they're together and uh, they also don't necessarily have to deal with the essential elements of movement building that relate to negotiating with other people in the movement about how it's going to work and what we're going to ask for and how we're going to do it. I'm really persuaded by arguments like Zainab Terfetchi's, who, who basically says social media has made it much easier for people power to be in our face, but has made it much weaker as a method because it undermines the processes that make movements become sustainable in the long term. That is their ability to survive challenges from within or without because they're strong and united. You know, you only get that way if you have repeated face-to-face -face interactions with people that make you work out your differences. Um, and as we know, the internet is not always the best place for people to engage in a way that will help them work out their differences. Now you've talked about the rise of movements in the U.S. in the last couple of years. Can you share some examples of uh, successful movements from around the world that you've observed either directly or you've read about that you think really highlight the effectiveness of nonviolence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are so many examples. Uh, on the top of my head, I can think of uh, the People Power Movement in the Philippines against Ferdinand Marcos, which is one of those kind of prototypical movements um, that involved a huge number of people who engaged in many different types of techniques from protests to demonstrations, rallies, strikes, boycotts, stayaways. There were uh, defections among the security forces. In particular, the, the church was involved and there was a time when uh, nuns had gathered in a particular public space to join the demonstrations and the Air Force was ordered to go and actually drop bombs on the crowd and the nuns formed a cross in the center of the square with their bodies and when those helicopters were flying over they couldn't bring themselves to drop bombs on them you know things like that so there were real defections there was just kind of uh, a lot of labor organizing that helped to create a sustainable participation and that brought a lot of skill to figuring out how to organize the movement effectively and in the end you know that movement brought down Ferdinand Marcos who was backed by the United States up until the very end so 
this is a good example of a movement that took on um, a regime with a powerful backer. Also, it's an example of a movement that did what many, many decades of armed insurrection wasn't able to do because there were lots of different insurgencies underway in the Philippines at the time, and they couldn't do this, um, but the people power movement could. Another good example is the bulldozer revolution from Serbia, which is very popular among students because uh, actually it was a, a largely student-led revolution. It was one of the first in a string of successful color revolutions that characterized the sort of first decade of 2000 against, in many cases, Russian-backed dictators around Eastern Europe and Central Asia. There's the Polish Solidarity Movement, which is another iconic example and one that indicated the diffusion of the East European revolutions against both Soviet domination but also communist regimes. And that brought about a mass democratization of Eastern Europe and Central Europe. There's also the South African anti-apartheid movement, which, you know, opinions vary about the degree to which uh, the armed wing of the ANC helped that movement along. Um, I actually think the movement won in spite of the armed um, insurgency, not because of it, but in that movement, it's clear that boycotts, uh, strikes, mass demonstrations, and other types of uh, community-led grassroots mobilizing is what really was the linchpin in determining the end of uh, legal apartheid there, and also that galvanized the international community to isolate the South African apartheid regime and force them to a decision that was largely driven by their economic isolation. I think that there are lots of other examples too, but, but those are some that occur to me off the top of my head. Of course, there's Gandhi as well. Yes, of course. <laughs> That's the first one I yeah. thought of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what gives you hope for the future? I think there are a, f a few things that give me hope. One is that we live in a time when, first of all, we have the benefit of very widespread and shared understanding of our mistakes from the past. The second thing is that we live in a time when all of the knowledge we could possibly need to know how to organize effectively to engage in collective action toward common claims is at our fingertips. And I was talking to James Lawson at one time, who's a mm -hmm. um, really important leader in the civil rights movement. And he said to me, I'm really jealous of all of you that get to organize today because when I was doing it, all we had was the Bible and Gandhi's autobiography. <laughs> and he said that, you know, we, we did the civil rights, we organized the civil rights movement based on Gandhi's autobiography. Um, and now you have manuals, you have websites, you have organizations who train people in how to do this, you have all the things. And we don't really have much of an excuse. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing that gives me hope is just the necessity of hope. You have to have it, because if you don't have it, you, well, despair is, is the most demobilizing and uh, demoralizing emotion that we have. Uh, hope coupled with a healthy degree of anger about injustice is the right combination for doing something about it. Thanks again, Erica, for joining us today. Once again, this is Justice Matters. I'm Sushma Raman, the Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Learn more about the Carr Center and our work 
at carcenter.hks.harvard.edu. Alex Geller produced and edited this episode. Thanks for listening.